Everybody sit up straight. Fold your hands neatly in your lap. Because we are about to go for a ride. Maybe a little bit of a wild ride. And I think the way I want to start this is with a... um, an illustration from a friend of mine who, when he uh, would, he would, I don't know, talk for certain groups, he would go around and, and be the guest keynote speaker for groups, uh, college groups. One of the things that he liked to say and said on the occasion where he came and spoke to a gathering that I was there for was that he looked out at the crowd and, and said, if You do not dress your kids up in Halloween costumes and go out trick-or-treating, then you're probably not a Christian. Uh Uh-oh, should I laugh at that? (laughs) Yeah, that that um, that was the reaction he was going for. This sort of stark, harsh reality. Did he mean that? Surely not. Is that possible? Uh, I, I, I think we all have our hands folded neatly in our laps, so you can't raise your hand. We know that wouldn't be proper, but hands wanted to go up. What do you mean? Come on, you can't be serious. What a jerk. Our passage today fires a shot like that. It comes to us in harsh tones. It is not nice and pleasant. There are going to be things that when you hear them, there's this visceral reaction to say, wait a minute, what does that mean? Surely not. Maybe you'd like to raise your hand and ask a question. That will not be allowed. But we're called today to hear the message from Hosea. We're in a series on rediscovering God in the Old Testament. And Hosea starts out actually okay, but very quickly moves to a harsh dissonance. A reality that causes us to take a step back to question to be confused even, and maybe even to wonder at the God who would put such a thing in his book. That's where we're going, so get ready. I ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. You can find it in Hosea chapter 1 or in your bulletin, I don't know the page there. I invite you to read along with me. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have no mercy on the house, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and your sisters, you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless this, this event, that even you, through the mouth of your apostle, admit looks foolish. Uh, looks like a very strange thing. But Lord, we know also through the mouth of your apostle that the power of God is unleashed through the proclamation of your word. Lord, may you save us this morning through it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, last week we looked at Isaiah We looked at his call narrative, and now we're looking at the call narrative of of a contemporary to Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who likely, I don't know, there's a question about this, but likely was in the southern kingdom. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, to Israel. If you don't know your history of Israel, one of the things that we would have found, we find Israel, where we find them in, in this passage, historically, is a long way away from the glory that was once theirs in King David. Uh, shortly after King David's uh, son, Solomon, uh, turned over his kingdom after he died. The kingdom split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, the northern being Israel, the southern being Judah. And for years now, close to 300 years, there has been this gradual decline of, of the glory that was once was. This hoped for uh, ideal king, this hoped for kingdom, this hoped for blessed people has slowly, uh, maybe not at times not so slowly, uh, at times really rapidly, um, slid into brokenness, into sin. Israel has a checkered history, alternating really between bad and worse. The way you marked, the, the way the one commentator says that the way you marked the northern kingdom Israel was, whether they were as bad as or worse than their first king, Jeroboam. Judah, on the other hand, had had maintained a single family line, the line of David, 
And typically what you looked at in Israel was how well the king did in comparison to David. And there was good and bad um, kings in Judah, but it wasn't as bad a story as it was in Israel. And Hosea has now been called. We see him in his call narrative being called to go and declare the word of the Lord to Israel, who is about to be overrun by Assyria. Uh, the, the Assyria is, has gathered strength and in some ways been pushed back, but ha- at this point in time is now regaining strength, remilitarizing, and they are about to be on the move. And they have their sights set on Israel. And Hosea has been called to preach, to proclaim this message to the Israelites in their incoming, uh, regarding their uh, sure-to-come doom at the hands of the Assyria. Contrasting this call is, is pretty unique. I didn't intend to do this, but... As I thought about this passage and thought about last week uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 in the call of Isaiah, we have this otherworldly experience. We have this beautiful, majestic scenery of the throne room of God and his, his robe that fills the entire throne room in the earth that spills out of heaven and angels flying around and declaring his glory, fire and smoke and holiness and awe. Hosea, not so much. His call comes to us with no robes, no angels, no majesty, no awe. It's really just abrasive. It's fingernails on the chalkboard. Hosea is called to go And take a wife who is a whore. Hosea, this is what I want for you. This is the first word. Look there. The first Lord first spoke to Hosea. The first thing God says to Hosea is, this is what I want you to do, Hosea. Go take a wife that's a whore. And the word, just in case you're not unsettled enough by it, it's translated three times in the English whore, but actually in the, in the Hebrew, it's there four times. Where it says that the land was uh, committed great whoring, it actually is twice there for emphasis. We might translate it more um, literally, that the land is a whoring whore. That's what I want you to do, Hosea. That's the kind of wife you're after. And let me just take a brief aside and deal with one little point that, um, that I think commentators and maybe even we get hung up on. How could God do this? How is that possible? I mean, you know, if I don't know, Hosea and Gomer gave, gave me a call and said, you know, we really want to come in for counseling. We're thinking about getting married. I would say, Hosea, do not marry this woman. She will break your heart. She will not be faithful to you. This is not a good marriage. 
And many commentators trip on it. So they make it an allegory. They say, surely God doesn't literally ask uh, Hosea to marry a a woman like this. Surely God would never do that. Surely his moral character and his holiness would prevent him from ever asking his prophet to do that. Even some of our, uh, uh, even Calvin looks at it and says, of course, how ridiculous. I think he uses the word stupid at some point. It's just almost dismissed out of hand. God could never, of course, do this. What about that? What about this conundrum, this moral conundrum? And what I want to offer to you just in brief passing is that the moral conundrum is that whole question is a part of our problem It's a part of the reason why we don't get God at all in some ways. I say get God at all. That's hyperbolic, I guess. But we miss God because we think that there's this awful moral conundrum of Hosea marrying Gomer, and we never trip and stumble over the scandal that this is really about God's marriage. We, we never stumble over the scandal of, of God's marriage to this woman. That's what this is about. And the problem for us, we trip over these small things and we miss the bigger thing. How can God marry a woman like that? Surely if it's, if it's a moral conundrum for Hosea, it's a moral conundrum for God. I don't think I'm on a thin limb on that. Surely if it calls into question the wisdom of Hosea, it would call into question the wisdom of God. Moving on, we move right from this command to he went and took Gomer. By the way, one of the reasons I believe this is a literal story about Hosea and a marriage to a real woman is that we distinguish this Gomer from other Gomers. We know who her father is. It's a, it's a historical detail, it's a narrative detail that wouldn't make sense if you were just telling an allegory. No. The reader hears and goes, oh, that one. Yeah, that Gomer. We know her daddy. We know who this is. What we understand, I think at least the way the narrative unfolds is that it's really not hard for Hosea to find her. Hosea knows Gomer to be this kind of woman. And in the words of Cam from Modern Family, she's not the heart of gold kind, but the by the airport kind. That's the kind of woman she is. That's the kind of whore she is. We might say it this way. She's a gold digger. She's the kind of woman who is after any man that will provide her prestige or shiny trinkets. Things that will make her feel better about herself. She's not vocationally a prostitute. That's not what this means. 
No, she spends her energy and her body to win the eye of the man that promises her wealth and prestige. Even while she's on the date, on the arm of her date, her eye is roving the room, looking for another man that will offer more, provide her more sense of who she is, sense of power and prestige. Somebody who has a better vacation home, who will buy her better clothes or a better car. And once she's married, she does the same thing. She goes to a party with her husband and she flirts with the best man in the room. Trying to gain his approval, his affection, the security that he offers. Maybe another way to look at it this it would be um, she's a groupie. She's the girl that presses to the front of the stage and wants desperately to catch the eye of the rock star because of all the glory that he promises her if he picks her. Uh, She's the one who wants to be around the athlete because she knows that if she can get the athlete, that she will be thought well of and that she will have all of the nice things that all the world tells her matters. That's Gomer. She's constantly on the prowl, looking looking for more, something else, something more than her husband can provide, at least in her own mind, something more than her husband can provide. She wants desperately to find security and happiness. God tells Hosea to marry that woman, to go and take her as a wife, not only that, he tells her to have children, and we begin to see what the children, uh, who the children are, at least what they represent. The Lord said, um, we see, she went and he took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. And they, the Lord said, call his name Jezreel. Now, that may not strike you as remotely interesting, But to call a name, uh, your son, the the name Jezreel would be like naming your child Milai. If you don't know what Milai is, it's a place of maybe the most atrocious uh, massacre at the hands of U.S. military in Vietnam. Where they went in and brutally killed, raped, burned, brutalized, men, women, children. Why would you name your son that? Jezreel is the place of Jehu's bloodshed. The Lord goes on to explain that. It's the place of bloodshed. It's the place of massacre. It's the place of shame. Not only that, but it, it's this place that once was the, the, the site of Gideon's greatest victory. 
the Valley of Jezreel had this prominent place in the history of the minds of Israel, and now it's this place of bloodshed, brutality. And God says, name your son that, because I'm going to visit judgment on Israel for their sin. Then we move on and see that she gives birth to another child, a daughter. But what we see about this daughter is that she's not Hosea's. She's the daughter of some other man. She's the daughter of one of her lovers, one of her sugar daddies, one of the ones that has brought shame already on this family. We see that in, in just in the, the lack of the detail we see in the birth of the first son. Look there in verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. The next two children are not born to him. She just conceives and gives birth. So Gomer has run into the arms of other lovers and now is giving birth to a child. This child is a child called No Mercy. The third child is a child called No Pity. Or Not My People, sorry. A son. Both of these are born out of her adultery, her wandering ways. And think about this. Every time, I don't know, little no mercy raises her hand in class and the teacher calls on her, the kids snicker at her name. Every time not my people is called home for dinner, the children that he's playing with hear his name called by his father. And his father feels the sting of his name and the son feels the sting of his name. And the community around them knows their family. Their shame is public and open for everyone to see. There is no hiding What's so hard about the naming of these two children is that they run 180 degrees out of phase from other statements by God. In Exodus, he says, Exodus 33, when he's talking to Moses, he says, look, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you, and then I'm going to describe what my goodness is. Let me unpack what I mean by my goodness. And this is what God says. The Lord, I am the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. At the very heart of the name of God is mercy and compassion, and yet God says, call her no mercy. Or maybe from the lips of Hosea's contemporary, Isaiah, this is what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child 
that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, no pity, no mercy. Even these may forget, but I won't. And yet here God is saying, no mercy. No mercy for the child of your unfaithfulness. No mercy for the people of unfaithfulness. Not my people. It's at the very heart of the promise of God. Again, in Exodus, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Leviticus, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. Call your son not my people. And the harshness of this reality sinks on us. It's abrasive. It's hard to hear. How is this possible? Let me start to offer some, I don't know, way of application. Some of us here today hear horror and think, that's me. That's me. That's all you can ever think of yourself. You identify with that word personally. But the reason you identify with that word personally is because somewhere in your life, someone has abused you. Someone has committed evil against you. And that has corrupted the way you see yourself. And this passage is not talking to you. Not in that way. And if that's you, all I can say right now is get help. Talk to somebody. Go somewhere where you can trust the person to talk through that. But when you hear those words, if that's you, you must hold on because there's something here for you. Some of us hear the word whore and think, oh yeah, that's them. Yeah, I know who these people are, the faithless ones. Some of you are sitting here right now agitated by them somewhere in this room. Some of you um, think that the church would be so much better if we could just get rid of Gomer. That the goal is to say, yeah, that's them, and we should get them out. Let me ask you. I don't know, are you constantly, if this is you, one way of identifying that is maybe if you're sitting there agitated, that I keep saying the word whore? Maybe. Or maybe you're still locked up on that first illustration. What do you mean about Halloween? (laughs) Let's get back to Halloween. (laughs) That's all I care about. 
Maybe you sit there Sunday after Sunday with some sort of low-grade agitation over the way things go here on Sunday morning or don't go here on Sunday morning. Or maybe it's just the way you are with your family, that you sit with your family and there's just a low-grade agitation that your wife or your children just won't get it together. Stop being Gomer. You bug me. Now, you're probably not that honest, but you're agitated constantly. Constantly pointing the finger, frustrated with others. Think the pure, that purity of the church means getting Gomer out, which is decidedly not what this passage says. We're in here that think that the purity of the church means getting Gomer out. That, that exists right here this morning. And it's decidedly counter to this passage of Scripture. The Scriptures as a whole, actually. So here, this morning, from God's Word, you're Gomer. Embrace it. Own it. Some of us hear the word whore and think, yeah, that's me. You rightly understand at times that your sin is as ugly and as vile as a woman who on her husband's arm is prowling for another man's affection. You can see the, the reality of your own life and your own heart and your own sin in Gomer. You understand what that's like. You know what it is to be a groupie. And I don't mean just uh, in, I mean that metaphorically. I hope you understand that. That, that you'll press to the front in order to catch the eye of somebody so that you know that you're okay, that you have worth and meaning and security, that you have value. That you think life is, is um, found in gathering as many trinkets as possible. And you'll even turn God into a sugar daddy to get those shiny trinkets. That's actually what Israel has done. And then when God doesn't provide quickly enough or to their satisfaction, their heart satisfaction, they run to somebody else. Israel in their, let, let me just stop here. I hope you all see that this marriage, this real marriage between Homer, Hosea and Gomer is, is reflective of God's relationship with his wife. I've alluded to that, but just so you can see it in the text, just look there in verse 2. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why? For the land commits great or the land is a whoring whore by forsaking the Lord. Hosea and Gomer are, are in this marriage because it reflects something that's true about the land. And what you need to see is that that word doesn't mean the dirt. It means the people. It means the church. That's the church. The land has done this. And Hosea and his re relationship with Gomer are reflective of the relationship between God and his people. So some of us here see that. 
We hear it. We understand that our hearts look for security in all kinds of counterfeit lovers. Whether it's a counterfeit sense of security, a counterfeit sense of purpose, a counterfeit sense of meaning, a counterfeit sense of blessing. We're growing in our awareness of how ugly our sin is. Hear God's word. Yet. The number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea. No repentance. Yet. No change of heart. Yet. No acknowledgement of guilt. Yet. No vow to quit and to change. Yet. Nothing in Israel has changed one bit. Yet. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. It's so radical. It's so amazing. It's astounding that there's this shift on a dime in verse 10 for no apparent reason. Look. Everything up to that point is judgment. Condemnation. Yet... Israel has not repented. You have got to see that. There's nothing changed yet. And all of a sudden, there's this astounding grace of God. This astounding statement of promise and blessing. This astounding statement of all that Gomer longs for will be given. There's this astounding statement that all the shame and guilt that has been brought through her sin will be overturned. And it's based on nothing but the pronouncement of God. See, the book of Hosea is a picture of what it looks like to understand the covenant of God, the covenant relationship of God. And I don't want to go too much into that, but just understand that the metaphor of the marriage is a metaphor describing what it looks like to be in covenant with God. When we talk about Redeemer being a place where there's covenant families and there's covenant nurture and covenant uh, instruction, what we're saying is that we're instructing people to embrace a God like this. Not a God who looks at you and says, get your act together and then... Repent and then promise and vow, work harder and then. No. At the heart of the covenant is a God who says, yet in the midst of this kind of guilt and shame, this kind of brokenness and sorrow, and completely changes it. Look, yet. You will be like the sand of the sea. He goes back to this promise in Genesis to Abram. 
Abraham, that he would have descendants that, that were like the, the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And what we begin to see as we unpack what it means to be in covenant with God is that our faithfulness, if the covenant hangs on our faithfulness, then we are no mercy, no pity, not my people. That's who we are. There is no way around it. If what it means to be in relationship with God hangs on our faithfulness, it means that we are out. And yet what we see is that God is working something else here. Some other reality, this reality of grace that offers uh, transformation, offers life, offers uh, the reversal of our guilt and shame based on nothing but the grace of God. Based on His love, His mercy, His compassion. Just as Abraham or Abram sits by or actually sleeps while God enters into covenant with him, so the Israelites do nothing while God promises their blessing. This is what the grace of God means. What we've got to see in the context of the Old Testament is the covenant unfolds is there's a, a short view and a long view the short view is um this view of israel and the land they are going to lose the assyrians and get kicked out of israel the land will no longer be theirs but there's a long view and that long view extends with pro through from promise to promise to fulfillment Judgment, yes, comes in a short view, and judgment comes in a long view. I think, I try to think of a metaphor for this, and maybe some of you physicists could help me, but um, there's an immediate uh, force to the judgment here. But that immediate force also has a trajectory that's going somewhere else. It doesn't stop here. There's a force to it, and it's real. It's real judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. They are being called to hear the word of the Lord and to, and to feel the weight of what their unfaithfulness means in their relationship to God. They really are. They're called to own the, the, the reality that they're Gomer, to embrace it. But that force, the force of that has a trajectory, and that trajectory is landing somewhere else. And we actually see that in the passage in a couple of ways, and I just want us to end there. Think about the names in the passage. You know, when Jonathan was born, we, we struggled a long time over a name, um, and when we first talked about names, it, it really wasn't as big of a struggle for me. But after going through years of infertility, as we talked about the name, the name just became really significant. And I was sitting in Hebrew and realized that Jonathan means gift of God. And I thought, that's my son. And I called Heather, went home, and I said, Heather, his name's Jonathan. And she said, well, what will we call him? I was like, we'll call him Jonathan. <laughs> she thought Jonathan sounded pretentious. 
It's like, no, his son is Jonathan. We will not call him anything else. And then, after not being able to get pregnant again and being able to adopt, we labored over the name. And we called our daughter Violet because her birth mom's name is Holly. Her birth mom's sister's name is Iris. And Heather's name is Heather. And we thought, what better name for a little girl than Violet? And in this passage, God begins renaming the children of this adultery, calling them something else. Verse 1 of chapter 2, You are my people and you have received mercy. None of us name our daughters Gomer. The only other Gomer I could come up with was Gomer Pyle. (laughs) Let me think about it. We have Sarah's and Elizabeth's and Mary's and Rachel's. Gomer. And then what we see as we press further into this is that the one who is called to marry Gomer, his name is Hosea, which actually is Hosea, which is actually a name that's other, uh, other places translated Joshua, and it means to save. And so God says, hey, save your prophet." Go marry an adulterous woman. And then he says to his son, Joshua, or Jesus, Hey, I want you to go take a bride. Yes, she's an adulterous bride. No, she shouldn't wear a white dress, but you're going to give her one. No, she will not remain faithful, but you will love her and lead her to faithfulness. You will restore her and make her all that I created her to be. You will go and take her and you will actually, the trajectory of the judgment to win this bride will either fall on her or you. The impact is going to land somewhere. Where will it land? And he sends his Hosea to take the force of the judgment that is rightly the faithless bride's. And then he gives her the purity and obedience of his own righteousness. He dresses her in all the beauty of salvation 
The beauty beyond trinkets, the beauty beyond gold, the beauty and strength and security beyond anything Assyria could provide or Egypt could provide or the Republican or Democrat party could provide. I will make you my bride. You will be my people. I will be your God. God sends his Savior in the midst of this mess to a wife like Gomer. All this is made possible. This grace, this new name, this new identity by the God who says, yet, despite anything you do. Let me close this way. Um, Bono is being interviewed. This, I don't know, quote I think went viral, so some of you may have heard it a few years back. It's profound. Bono says this in an interview, I really believe we're moved out of the realm of karma into grace. And what he means by karma, well, you'll catch on. That doesn't make it clear to me, the interviewer says, I don't know what you mean by saying we move from the realm of karma to grace. So Bono goes on to explain. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. You know, Gomer, Hosea has every right to divorce you for your faithlessness. Absolutely. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. And here's what I want you to hear when you hear that word karma and that statement. Hear law. Hear law. I am absolutely sure of it. Law is at the very heart of the universe. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that, as you reap, so will you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Bono. He's just summarized chapter one of Hosea, that love interrupts all the stupid stuff you've done to give you grace and mercy, to provide something that is completely counterintuitive to the deep magic of this universe. Will you take hold of the God of grace and mercy? Amen.